You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, In 1986, in Bowers v. Hardwick, the Supreme Court upheld state anti-sodomy laws. The Supreme Court ruled that there was no constitutional right to engage in homosexual acts, and that states could ban gay sex and arrest gay men. The details, the actual case is infuriating. A bigoted Atlanta cop with a personal beef against a gay bartender went to that bartender's apartment to serve an invalid warrant and walked into that guy's bedroom where he was having sex with his boyfriend at the time, he arrested them both on the spot for violating Georgia's anti-sodomy statute. The Bowers decision said that that cop had every right to do so, that gay men did not have a right to privacy, that Georgia had every right to throw gay men in prison for having sex with each other. Prison where, as David Letterman joked on the night, the Bowers decision came down, prison where no one ever has gay sex. I had to wait a whole day to read the actual decision. It was 1986, so it wasn't online right away because there was no online. I was at a rehearsal the next day, and rehearsal came to a stop when someone carried in a pile of newspapers. The New York Times published the decision in full. The room went silent as everyone read. Some of us wept. All of us were furious. We were being told by the Supreme Court, by our own government, again, that our bodies weren't our own, that we couldn't make our own choices about our own bodies, that we remained second-class citizens. It was devastating. Last week, devastating news from that same court. That we knew this was coming somehow didn't make the news any less devastating. In Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court upheld Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban and overturned Roe v. Wade. In their dissent, the three liberal justices still on the court said the decision in Dobbs consigns women to second-class citizenship or reconsigns them. American women are less free now than they were the last time I spoke to you. And if Republicans have their way, American women will be less free next week than they were last week. In case anyone is curious where we're headed, Clarence Thomas signaled, no, he stated bluntly in his concurrence that conservatives on the court are coming for Griswold, the 1965 Supreme Court decision that declared Americans had a right to privacy. Griswold overturned a law in Connecticut that barred straight married couples from using contraceptives. Without that right to privacy, which the Supreme Court read into the Constitution in Griswold and has now, with Dobbs, after more than half a century, read right back out, without that right to privacy, to bodily autonomy, there's no loving the court's 1967 decision that overturned bans on interracial marriages, like the one Clarence Thomas is in. There's no Obergefell, the 2015 Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriages, like the one I'm in. There's no Lawrence v. Texas the 2003 decision that overturned Bowers v. Hardwick and scrapped anti-sodomy statutes still on the books in 13 states. And as I always like to remind my straight readers and listeners, Lawrence didn't just overturn anti-gay sodomy laws still on the books in 13 states, but anti-straight ones too. 
Yes, straight people, if you've had or want to have or are right now having, while you listen to the sound of my voice, if you are right now having oral sex, anal sex, if you're 69ing, if you're using contraception even or sex toys, you are a sodomite too. And if you think the assurances the other justices gave that they weren't coming for Griswold or Lawrence or Loving or Obergefell, the same justices who lied their faces off during their confirmation hearings to get on the Supreme Court in the first place, if you're buying what Alito and Kavanaugh had to say about birth control and gay marriage, not coming for it, there's a bridge in Brooklyn and an abortion clinic in Texas I'd like to sell you. I know it kind of centers gay guys in all of this, gay sex, but I can't help but keep thinking about the day the Supreme Court handed down its decision in Bowers v. Hardwick. You know what we didn't do after that decision came down? We didn't stop having sex. I got sodomized that night. The same night Bowers v. Hardwick got handed down, my boyfriend and I watched Letterman, and then we said, you know what, fuck the Supreme Court, and then we fucked each other. When sodomy was illegal, which it may be again soon in this country if Clarence Thomas gets his way, we still had sex. When gay marriage was illegal, which it may be again soon, again, if Clarence Thomas gets his way, we still had lovers. We made lives together and created our own families. We didn't wait for permission. We didn't wait for Lawrence. We didn't wait for Obergefell. We lived our lives. We insisted on controlling our own bodies, even if it meant breaking the law. In re-rereading Alito's opinion for the majority, I read it when it leaked. He wants to teach us a lesson about history. He thinks he's teaching us a lesson about history. He cites all the different times and all the different places and all the different ways authorities, kings and witch burners going back centuries, sought to criminalize abortion. And the lesson Alito draws from this is that authorities today have the right to criminalize abortion. But the real lesson here, the one he misses, is why authorities had to keep passing laws against abortion in the first place. It's because women who needed them didn't stop getting them. Just like us gay boys in 1986, women never stopped. And stopping women now from getting abortions, women and other people who need abortions, is going to be a lot harder than it was in the 1950s or the 1650s. I want to signal boost something here that Dr. Jen Gunter said this week. If you're not already reading her newsletter, The Vagenda on Substack, you need to start. As we rise up, Dr. Jen writes, as we rise up against those who would oppress us and take away the right to abortion, I ask you not to use the coat hanger as a rallying cry, because that is the symbol of my era, a time when a pregnancy could only be ended with a procedure. The symbol, Dr. Jen says, for this era is a pill. Oh my God. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you to everyone who took to the streets to protest Dobbs, this decision this week. It is so important that we take to the streets. A lot of people were carrying coat hangers. Coat hangers symbolize a time when women who needed to self-administer an abortion would use coat hangers to do so. Coat hangers symbolize desperation, despair, and the deaths of so many women who died in the years before Roe. We carried them at pro-choice demonstrations in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I passed them out at a protest in 1992 when it looked like the Supreme Court was about to overturn Roe then. The coat hanger was a symbol of a time we didn't want to return to, the battle days, the terrifying days, the days when women died of self-administered abortions. 
We carried wire hangers at those protests to remind us why we were fighting and to shame those seeking to consign women again to the dangers of second-class citizenship. But you know what? I'm with Dr. Jen. Fuck wire hangers. Retire that symbol. Put a round white pill on a flag and on signs and make giant ones on a cardboard. Wave them in their faces at demonstrations because the pill symbolizes power, agency, and control. The pill, these pills, they're not a solution. Women are still at risk. Not every woman can get a medication abortion. There are women who will need surgical abortions. We will fight for their right. But as a symbol of protest, but what a pill says more effectively as opposed to a wire hanger, not just that we aren't going back. A wire hanger says we're scared. A pill says, fuck you. They're going to try to ban them. They already are trying to ban them. But you know what? You can put a pill in your pocket. You can put a pill in the mail. You can share a pill with a friend who might need one. And what are they going to do about it? They can't keep heroin out of prisons. They're not going to be able to keep these pills out of Alabama or South Dakota or Idaho or Iowa or Louisiana. We're going to fight to overturn Dobbs just as we fought to overturn Bowers. And as a part of that fight, we're going to get abortion pills into red states and we're going to get women who need more complicated abortion procedures out of red states. The symbol of the fight we're in now, not the coat hanger. It's the pill and the boarding pass. All right, coming up on today's show, which I want to note was recorded before the Dobbs decision came down last week. So tone shift here on the micro and magnum, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the micro, I take a call from a listener who's concerned about damaging her instrument. She is a singer. She's concerned for her vocal cords, worried specifically about damaging them during rough oral sex. Opera star, one of the biggest stars in opera, in the world, Jamie Barton, world-famous mezzo-soprano, is here to help tackle that listener's question. And on the Magnum, comedian David Drake, who is funny and hot, joins me to talk about how that happened. Usually hot people aren't funny. Funny people aren't hot. We also discuss whether getting jacked off at a massage parlor counts as cheating. All that coming up on today's Lovecast. Hey, how you doing, Dan? Me and my wife are in a polyamorous marriage going on almost two years since we um, started polyamory about two years ago. My wife is dating someone and I like him and everything like that, but my concern is that he doesn't have a job and um, he's suffering from like a degree of depression and anxiety. He's trying to help him like try to lift his spirits up so he can get some confidence or something going for him to find a job so that he can provide for his four-year-old daughter. Um, he, he lives with his mom. He's 40 years old. Um, I really like him. I'm really pulling for him, but I'm just concerned that my wife really like lowered her standards as far as dating someone in hopes. I was like, well, I don't mind her dating men or women because she's a bisexual, but I just worried about the kind of men that she is dating. Granted, they used to date before she met me about six years ago. He ended up dating someone else, so she was kind of bummed, but she was single when I met her. And then six years later, we, we are married. I know I should stay in my lane and try to tell her, not to tell her who she can and cannot date, but I'm just concerned that she's giving this guy so much time while I'm out at work and they're in the apartment that 
we both share, and I pay most of the bills. Uh, she pay half, but he's not doing anything to really improve himself, and it's worrisome. I'm sorry, but if your wife is dating someone and you're Polly, you're married to your wife, your wife is your wife, then she's merging that person into your lane? This is in your lane. You're allowed to have an opinion about the people that your wife dates, particularly if this is some kind of kitchen sink poly arrangement where this guy is in your house. Now, you don't necessarily get to have the kind of poly relationship where you have veto power, although some people do. Some people have open relationships, hierarchical polyamorous relationships where the primary partner can declare someone out of bounds or order their primary partner to dump a secondary partner that the primary partner, for some reason, doesn't like. Now, it's fine for you two not to have veto power over each other's outside partners. It's not fine for your wife to tell you or her boyfriend to tell you or for you to tell yourself, maybe this is something you're telling yourself, that you're not allowed to have an opinion about the person your wife is dating. At the very least, you're allowed to have an opinion about that person because her bringing him back into her life brings him into your life. And if he's a house on fire or he requires a huge amount of your wife's time and attention, and if, I don't know, if not having his shit together pulls more attention toward him from your wife, that kind of incentivizes him not having his shit together and he's not going to get better for having her attentions, you can say all these things to your wife. And then you can say to her, up to you, and I will support you, whatever you decide to do. But this guy kind of, well, you know, you dated him before and he left you for somebody else and here you are with me. And yeah, if we had the kind of polyamorous relationship where I could exercise a veto, this might be the time when I chose to exercise a veto, but I'm not going to exercise no veto that I don't got. You can say all this to her, but I don't think he's worth it. I don't think he's worthy of your time, of your attention. And to the extent that your partners become my metamors, your partners too, my partners too, I would rather you bring somebody into our life that I felt better about. That's not you telling her who she can date, who she can't date. That's you sharing with your wife how you feel about the man who isn't her husband, the other man, that she is dating. You're entitled to your feelings. It's really important in a polyamorous relationship that you keep those lines of communication open. That means you're allowed to, entitled to, expected to express your feelings to your wife. Again, not just about the person she's bringing into her life and her bed, but the person she's bringing into your life too. Hey, Dan, I'm a tech savvy at-risk youth, 30-year-old, heteroflexible female living on a big city on the West Coast, calling with a question about open relationships. I am recently out of a three-and-a-half-year relationship um, that was really wonderful, but we were on different pages about preferences about open relationships. It was something I really wanted and was interested in for a long time, and I was honest with my partner about that, and it just sort of eventually got to the point that it was not something he could ever see himself doing. So sad because otherwise things were good in the relationship, but I know it ended up, you know, being something that we were just on different pages about. Anyways, my question now is starting to kind of get into the dating world, and I feel like I'm met often with this sort of judgment, I guess, from people about being able to find someone who 
is open to that and also start a family and have a long-term, like, serious, committed relationship. So I just feel like you have a good pulse on this community and wanted to hear your words if you think there are some cool guys out there who want to do the family-loving partner thing and also want to be in an open relationship. Of course, there are people out there, there are men out there who want committed relationships and want to have children and aren't interested in monogamy, would like open relationships. The problem for someone in your position is a lot of those guys who want commitment and children don't yet realize that they also want an open relationship or a monogamish relationship or some kind of non-monogamy. A lot of people out there close to your age who want kids and want commitment also think that must mean they also want monogamy. There is a reason that it is a cliche that people realize after they've made a long-term commitment that they want to have an open relationship. There's a reason I get so many calls from people who are in committed monogamous relationships, either by choice, by active choice, which is better than by default, where they just got into a committed relationship and that meant monogamy and that wasn't something that was ever actively discussed. It wasn't an opt-in to monogamy conversation, but a stumble into monogamy again, default setting. And I get a lot of calls from people who want to renegotiate the terms of the commitment that they made to allow for openness often long after the fact, long after the marriage, long after or shortly after, as was the case with an infamous recent call, shortly after having kids. The trick for you is you know this about yourself now. And so what do you do? Well, I think you put it out there. I think you include this in your dating profiles or you make this something that when you're seeing someone and getting more serious that you put on the table as a discussion point. You know, when you get to that point in dating, when you are considering someone as a long-term prospect and they are also considering you as a long-term prospect, that's typically where people have conversations about marriage and kids and should also have a conversation at that point about monogamy and their expectations. You may find yourself developing feelings for a guy who isn't interested in monogamy and you may face that fork in the road, that choice where you have to decide if making a monogamous commitment is the price of admission you're willing to pay to be with this guy and have kids with this guy. You can make it clear, though, that you would prefer an open relationship, that you would prefer a non-monogamous relationship and have a discussion, an open, honest discussion. If a, someone is going to pay the price of admission to make this relationship work, whether it's going to be you paying a monogamous price of admission or him paying a non-monogamous price of admission. All right. I'm going to say something here that might get me in trouble with some uh, poly folks. A lot of people who want kids want monogamy, at least while they're ramping up to having the kids or while the kids are young. It may be that you form a partnership with somebody, you commit to somebody and what you've committed to is monogamy for the first few years, maybe monogamy for the first five years, 10 years, and then a discussion or then a commitment from this person you're committing to monogamy for a limited time that they will agree 
Once you're past the sort of stressful relay race that is a child's young life or your children's young lives, to opening the relationship, to some allowance for outside sexual contact at that point. So I guess what I'm telling you is to, you know, ask the universe for what you want, but to brace yourself for the possibility that you might not get it or you might not get everything that you want, at least maybe hmm, not as quickly as you might want it. Hi, Dan and everybody. I have a gender identity etiquette question. I found myself briefly in a situation today. I was the housekeeper at my client's home and the dog walker was coming to take care of the dogs. And this person presented as what I would have previously probably described as a butch lesbian, but very well could have been identifying as non-binary. And I was talking to the dogs and said, guys, let her get in the door. And then I realized after I had labeled the dog walker with female pronouns that that might have not been comfortable for them. And so I'm wondering if the way somebody presents is in question, but you don't have all of the information, you're in a casual situation like that. Is it best to just say, let them in the door? Like, dogs back off, let them get in the door? Because though I identify as a cisgendered female pronoun, she, her, and bisexual, I wouldn't ever be offended if somebody played it safe and called me they, them. I would consider them to be evolved and enlightened and thoughtful and playing it safe with something neutral, allowing me to jump in and give my preferred pronouns if I wanted to. Is that the way to go these days? It feels like maybe it would be safer, but then I'm wondering if I'm becoming one of those overly cautious liberals who's overthinking things, because you get a lot of those, too. I might be one of them. Let me know. Sometimes it really does feel like there's two kinds of people in the world, or two kinds of people, I should say. On Twitter, there is the reasonable person who assures you that no one out there is upset if somebody accidentally, non-maliciously misgenders them and people aren't freaking out at people about innocently getting a pronoun wrong. They're just saying, they're just speaking up, saying, hey, my pronouns actually are, and then getting on with it. That's one kind of person. The other kind of person are the people absolutely freaking the fuck out on Twitter or at people for getting their pronouns wrong, non-maliciously, making a reasonable assumption, which is why you're hesitant, which is why you're wringing your hands about possibly having misgendered this person. And, and maybe you didn't. You, they didn't correct you. They didn't seem to get upset. You heard the person at the door who presented in a way that you thought looked like a butch lesbian to you. You heard them and they didn't freak out at you. So maybe you got it right. Or maybe they're one of those people who, if somebody accidentally non-maliciously uses their non, you know, uses a pronoun that they don't identify with, doesn't use their correct pronouns, doesn't freak out. In this case, didn't even correct you. But yeah, I can understand why you're self-conscious about this, because despite the fact that there are a lot of people online scolding people for suggesting that anyone might scold them for using 
the wrong pronoun for making an assumption that didn't turn out to be true, there are twice as many people, an equal number of people online scolding people for making a reasonable assumption and accidentally using the wrong pronoun. The way out of this, of course, is just to avoid using pronouns altogether. You didn't need to, when you were addressing the dogs at the door, gender the person at the door for the dogs, for the dogs to understand who you were talking about in that moment. You could have just said to the dogs, calm the fuck down, get the fuck out of the way, let the person in the room. It's actually not that hard to avoid gendered pronouns at all until you have some clarity from the person that you're addressing or talking about as to what their pronouns are. This is a rare example, actually, your call, your case, a rare example where you're using someone's pronouns in reference to them in front of them. Usually, you know, she came over and she said this, she said that. Usually when we're using someone's pronouns, they're not there. But in this case, this person was there. Either, again, this person identifies as she, her, or this person isn't the kind of person who freaks out. If they are non-binary, it's someone who she, hers them instead of they, thems them. So you guessed right, or this person isn't one of those people who flips out. But I got to say, those people who flip out, those people exist. And when you mention that there are some people online or in real life who flip out about pronouns, there are some people who flip out at you about you suggesting that anybody might flip out about this. But the reason I get calls like yours, and yours isn't the first call like yours I've ever gotten before, is because enough people are out there flipping out about it that people are worried. People are self-conscious about using the wrong pronoun. I think the right thing to do if you're self-conscious about the possibility that you might get somebody's pronouns wrong, just avoid pronouns altogether. With a little practice, it's not that hard. You could also default, as you said, to non-binary pronouns, to they, thems. And what you're likely to encounter at some point is someone who is offended that you they, them, them when they are presenting clearly as male, clearly as female, or even when their gender presentation is a little butch. But I promise you, if you just default to they, theming everyone, you will eventually they, them, someone who is offended that you they, them, them when they clearly are presenting in their head as male or female or don't want you making assumptions about them identifying as non-binary just because they're a butch lesbian or an effeminate Guy, yeah, pronouns. Hard to get right 100% of the time. Easy to avoid using most of the time, particularly when you're talking to dogs. Hello, Dan. I am not 100% sure what I'm looking for by leaving this message. Uh, I just know that I am at a place where I have no idea what to do. Um, So uh, um, long story short... I'm 39, I have a 10-year-old, I live in a town in Southeast PA where everybody knows each other, and I am co-parenting with my child's mother. We get along great, we have awesome non-custodial agreements, everything is going really well. It took a lot of work for both of us, a lot of therapy for both of us to grow and to understand how relationships work to the degree that we understand at this point. When we were getting divorced eight years ago, 
a few of her friends decided that I was a gaslighter and emotionally and verbally abusive. And it's not that I think they want to hurt me as much as I believe they believe it. And I don't feel like I'm in a position to defend that. I've never felt like that. I've never wanted to give the flip side <laughs> to really shed some perspective on the situation as a whole. I, I won't do that because there's just a group of people here that stop at nothing to ostracize abusers. They ruin their lives in this town. People move because of it. I know somebody who attempted to take his life because of it. And although these, some, some of these people, maybe all of these people did horrible shitty things that nobody is actually going into any detail about, nobody defends themselves because the few times that it's happened, it's been a ton of wrath from a ton of people. So I've never attempted to explain my side. I know that I checked with my child's mother. I asked her if she ever thought that I was that way. And she said, no. She said, if anything, she was worried about how she treated me and that she never felt like I was gaslighting her. This stuff is still being said. I hear numerous times a year that people are being warned about me, that people are being told that I am manipulating them. Friends of mine are being told that they only believe that I'm a kind person because I've manipulated them into believing that and that they will see with time that I am an abusive person and I'm just not. It's just not true. And I don't know how to say that. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that. And now I don't know what to do because every time this happens, every time somebody else is warned about me, you know, puts me in a place that's very difficult for me to feel comfortable being a part of the community with it. It's very isolating and it's very hard and I go through a lot of therapy for it and I don't know how to stop it. I don't think I can. And so now I think my only option is to find a way to move. And that's really hard because of the connections I have here, family connections and work connections, and I'm hoping for some other ideas. I only have one suggestion, and I'm taking you at your word here, that you're not an abuser or a gaslighter, and you didn't emotionally abuse your ex-wife, the person that you're co-parenting this 10-year-old with. Uh, when you were briefly married more than eight years ago, you've been divorced for eight years. You were together for a few years, had a kid, divorced when your kid was two. You've endured this whisper campaign in what sounds like a very unpleasant town to live in for eight years, but you're reaching the breaking point and you're thinking about moving away. And so I think the person to turn to right now is your wife and your ex-wife, not to coerce her or manipulate her into speaking up for you. But if indeed you are forced to move away because you can't bear this anymore, well, that's going to negatively impact not just you, your connections, your family and work, your relationship with your daughter. Presumably that's going to have a negative impact on your wife. You say that you have a good co-parenting relationship. Well, if you move the fuck away and you're the non-custodial parent, more of the burden falls to your wife. She doesn't get the nights off, the weekends off, or the weeks off if you have a 50-50 co-parenting custodial arrangement with your wife that she gets now. And I don't think that you should 
threaten her, attempt to leverage that. Hey, nice windows you got there. Shame if something should happen. Nice co-parenting relationship we've got here. Shame if something should happen to it. But the reality of the situation is that these people, you know, giving you the benefit of every doubt that these people are out there doing this shit, whispering about you maliciously and groundlessly and needlessly. These people are out there doing that and it's making it impossible for you to live in this community. And the person, the only person that the people out there engaged in this whispering campaign might regard as credible in vouching for you as not having been abusive or after eight years of therapy, not being the person that you were, having done the work, having bettered yourself, if indeed you were, when the relationship was falling apart, you weren't at your best, neither was your ex-wife. The only person who can convince these motherfuckers of that, yeah, it ain't you and it ain't me and it ain't your family. It's your ex-wife. And these people who are waging this long whispering campaign against you, I'm sure they think that they're doing this for your wife, your ex-wife, that this is, you know, they're coming retroactively, I guess, to her aid by attacking you, marginalizing you, cutting you off from friends in the community that you might make on her behalf to stick up for her, you know, to take vengeance, to, to mete out vengeance on her behalf. And if this is going to fuck up her life and she doesn't think that this is necessary or welcome, then she's the one who's going to have to say something to whoever the ringleaders are in this long campaign in this shitty town for you. You know, all towns should be shitty for abusers, but if you're not an abuser to be falsely accused of abuse, that would be shitty. And in the end, if you have to move away, not just going to be shitty for you, it's going to be shitty for your wife and it's going to be shitty for your kid. So maybe your ex-wife should speak up. And if your ex-wife won't speak up on your behalf, well, that means one of two things. Either your ex-wife doesn't agree with you or your ex-wife is as afraid of these people in this shitty town as you are. And if that's the case, maybe you can convince your ex-wife to move away, to move to a new town, not with you in a romantic sense, but with you in the let's both get the fuck out of here and go co-parent as amicably divorced, respectful exes someplace else. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 39-year-old bi cis woman living on the West Coast of BC. I recently started seeing someone new, and we've been playing around with a DS dynamic. One of the things that he really loves doing is shoving his huge cock deeply down my throat and uh, fucking my face like quite hard. And I got to say, I love it too. I think it's fantastic. It really turns me on. But the next day, my throat is quite sore. And as much as I love playing this game with him, I'm worried because I love singing. So my question to you is, does this rough oral that's leaving me with a sore throat cause damage to my vocal cords? 
Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Jamie Barton, internationally acclaimed opera singer, performed multiple times, a regular performer at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, has performed at Carnegie Hall, the Royal Opera House, Lyric Opera in Chicago, Bayesha Staatsoper, I assume somewhere in Bavaria. Jamie Barton, thank you so much for demeaning yourself by coming on my sex podcast. (laughs) Oh, I'm totally excited. I love to nerd out on anything vocal, and I am such a fan of yours. This is is a dream come true. (laughs) Well, I'm a fan of yours. I've known about you for years. I'm not a big opera goer, but my husband is, and he is a huge fan of yours. And I'm a little starstruck. Uh, I think you're the first professional opera singer I've had on my sex podcast. Is this the first sex podcast that you've done as a professional opera singer? It really is, but I am I'm so excited. I I seriously I've been a Magnum subscriber for a several years now at this point. You know I am such a fan of yours. Um, and we we both have that uh, love in our heart of Broadway as well. That's kind of where I come from. So I, where, yeah, where did you grow up? How did you wind up becoming the nose studded good girl, bad girl, <laughs> rebel of bra- of opera? <laughs> well, I grew up hilariously enough in the deep south, um, in a tiny little valley in North Georgia. Rome, Georgia is the town that we went to for groceries. But yeah, opera kind of took me and put me on a different path. And here I am. Well, I'm really glad that you're here. I'm a little flabbergasted. I I got this question and I thought, I think Jamie Barton could answer this question. (laughs) She'd know, like, uh, opera singers have sex, right? Oh, definitely. 1000%. (laughs) You know, you you look at people who are in the fine arts and high arts, especially people who, you know, reach the pinnacle as you have at at the you know, the top of, of your profession and such a rarefied profession. And you look at these people and you think, you know, sex isn't something they would think about or talk about because they're they're supposed to be about <laughs> art and singing and, and and whatever. But like sex is a thing opera singers have, is it not? Oh, it totally is. It totally is. And quite honestly, having good education and knowledge around what affects your voice is, I think, a very important thing. So I am delighted to be able to hopefully take a little bit of the taboo away from uh, the sex education when it comes to the voice. Okay, so the caller's question. She's 39 years old. She's a singer. Uh, I hope, caller, I hope you're impressed that we went right to the top to get the answer for you. (laughs) We didn't, like, get some vocal coach. Got Jamie fucking Barton on the line here. (laughs) She's worried about the throat fucking that she's engaged in. Okay, before we get to the specifics of getting your throat fucked, how does an opera singer take care of their vocal cords? What What does your routine look like? Well, a lot of it is just knowing your own body. Uh, For me, I know that sleep is really, really important. Hydration is really, really important. I'm not one of those opera singers that can't have, you know, spaghetti sauce or something like that just because I know my own body. I know what it reacts to. But it really is all about dialing into your own body and figuring out what works for you. But my my two big things are sleep and, and hydration. If I don't get sleep, I'm grumpy as fuck and I am <laughs> probably not going to be in good voice. <laughs> so I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and uh, assume that you've performed oral sex. I have. And... Has it had any impact on your ability to get up on the stage at the Met Opera and kill it? (laughs) 
I would say no, it, it really hasn't. You know, in my own experience, yes, I, I have definitely had oral sex. I have had rough oral sex. I enjoy that, actually. God, my publicist is going to kill me. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, the effects of of doing that are relatively short-lived and definitely can be navigated in a way that's a little more singer-friendly. And how can they be navigated? Is it just vocal, you know, deep throat rest, vocal rest after, or <laughs> special kinds of tea? Like, how do you rest up after rough oral sex? How do you bounce back? Well, First of all, I think it's really important to know that the likelihood of you doing actual damage to your voice is pretty much non-existent. Um, there is some very short-term damage that can be done. For example, if a person giving the blowjob, you know, engages in making gagging or choking noises, you can end up with a rough voice afterwards. And that's because the saliva in your throat is actually kind of being redirected to the mouth because, you know, you're busy there. <laughs> you need mm -hmm. a little extra. Mm -hmm. And so it can be a little bit drying to the cords. So if you add that kind of rough vocalization on top of the drying, drying of the cords, then you can end up with a bit of a hoarse voice. And then, you know, if somebody tenses up their body, if they tense up their throat in the act of it, you can have some lingering muscle tension in the throat. But the thing to remember is that <laughs> a phallus is never, ever, ever going to touch the vocal cords because that's literally not the direction it goes. There's the larynx and then kind of the area around the larynx that leads to the esophagus. And that's where a phallus goes. Um, so you're literally never going to have uh, any sort of situation where a penis or a dildo or anything like that is making its way towards the vocal cords, which I know that could that could be a concern for some people who may not know that. Well, that, that surprises, I mean, that's just, you know, people think, oh, I gave her this rough blowjob, I got my face fucked, and now my throat is sore, and they think, oh, my vocal cords are sore. And what you're saying is you're just, people are just associating general throat soreness after a face fuck with having abused or battered your vocal cords. And it, I learn something on my podcast all the time, I just learned that. That a dick isn't going to touch your vocal cords. It's literally never going to touch your vocal cords. And honestly, if you go into the act of rough oral sex with the, uh, the, the things in mind of like, don't tense up, try to relax, um, and don't make gagging noises, then you're probably going to abate most of the kind of rough voice feelings that people might have after that. I would say the one no-go for singers, and I, me personally, I would say this is a no-go for humans in general, but the one no-go for singers most definitely is choking. Mm. Um, there is a significantly higher chance of vocal or laryngeal damage in choking. I actually have a friend who I, I pinged about this. She's a voice professor at Denver University and a soprano. She actually had a student who damaged their hyoid bone during uh, choking. And the hyoid bone is rather integral to the singing voice. Mm -hmm. um, and their partner had had their hands in the wrong place. So that's, you know, choking for so many reasons is not a good idea. But significantly with, with singers, I would, I would absolutely avoid that. But when it comes to just the act of a rough blowjob, at worst, you're looking at a couple of days of maybe having a hoarse voice if it's super, super rough. Maybe just don't give blowjobs the night before you're going to go do a performance. It's funny because I want to say it's fine to choke on a dick. Right. Because what's happening is the dick is in the way. It's, you can't, you're having difficulty breathing around it. It's not putting any pressure 
on your carotid artery, on those delicate bones that you need to to be able to sing. It's not crushing your neck or throat. It's just a cork in the wine bottle, right? Oh, totally. The, the whole choking phenomenon kind of blows my mind. And it is, I think, irrefutable evidence that like porn can really create a norm or an expectation that becomes widely adopted. And we have to push back against it because it is really, really dangerous. People have died from what someone thought was fun choking. And a lot of people have been traumatized by a partner thinking this is what's expected or everybody likes this because everybody seems to like it in porn. And uh, now we know from Jamie Barton that you can (laughs) hurt someone's singing voice by busting out a choking move. Absolutely. Even if it's consensual, even if it's what somebody wants, you shouldn't. Absolutely. Don't choke. Don't choke. I, you know, I've, I've heard Mistress Matisse say it all the time on your podcast. You know, it's, it's a varsity level thing that just doesn't need to happen. And yeah, I think especially for singers, you're, you're talking about the most delicate area. You know, you're talking about a combination of muscle and bone um, that you really do have to take consideration around. It can take a beating. You can you can suck a dick. It's going to be fine. <laughs> but um, when it comes to the <laughs> when it comes to the choking, you you really I, it's just I would say professional opera singer here saying don't do it. Jamie Barton, thank you so much for jumping on the phone and, and answering this question for my listeners who are interested in finding you online, following you online, seeing you perform. Where are you on the internet so people can? Get to your stuff. I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, all it, if you search for Jamie Barton Mezzo Soprano, you'll find me. My website is jamiebartonmezzo.com. And uh, yeah, I'm all, literally all around the world. Come see me in a in a show or a performance. The pandemic must have been hard for the opera community because everything shut down. Oh yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was a full shift in life for sure. Well, I'm glad you're out there performing again. Um, You're such a huge talent. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and vast cocksucking experience with my caller. (laughs) My pleasure. Anytime. Good afternoon, Daniel. How are you doing? Hello to the Tech Savvy Artist Group and Nancy as well. So there's two of us here. We're from Ireland and we recently went to a sauna in Ireland and we came across something that is new to us and not, that, not all that pleasant, really. So we were, both of us separately met this guy, and while fucking him, he decided to, like, gyrate his hips in a 360-degree motion. Granted, fine, like, a little bit, but, like, to the point where I felt like my penis got pulled off. And we're wondering, is this something new? Is this something that people are doing? Or are we out of touch a little bit? That twerking thing, man, it is out of hand. People can do things these days People practice doing things these days with their hips that back in my day, nobody did with their hips. And you didn't have to worry about somebody grinding side to side on your dick or rotating 360 degrees and spinning on your dick. People just went up and down on your dick. Yeah, I can imagine that this is a thing that happens now after twerking went mainstream. What you need to do at a moment when somebody starts doing something on your dick with their ass that does not feel good is speak the fuck up. And I hope you did. I hope you either tapped out, literally tapped the fuck out, your dick the fuck out with this guy's ass, or you just tapped out of the twerking, the grinding, the gyrating that he was doing on your dick and let this person know that that 
did not feel good. Good communication is important. It's important, of course, in the context of committed relationships. It's also important in the context of those hyper STRs, those hyper short term relationships that gay men may have with other gay men that they meet at saunas or elsewhere and not be inhibited. Obviously you're not inhibited. You're a gay dude in a sauna with your dick in the ass of somebody that your friend had his dick in the ass of five minutes earlier. That's not inhibited. But if you didn't say something in that moment for fear of ruining the vibe by using your words or hurting this person's feelings while this person hurt your dick, well, you did your dick a disservice. You probably made your dick feel like your dick isn't safe with you, much less safe in that other guy's ass. So yeah, at a moment when something like that is happening, you should use your words. You should say something. You should tell the person to stop. And yeah, I imagine, I don't go to saunas in Ireland or elsewhere, but I imagine that this is a thing that is happening out there with people's hips and two people's dicks. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak about comedy specials. As you know, people make them primarily so that all of us will have something to complain about on the internet. But I recently stumbled over one that I loved, so I'm going to break with custom and enthuse about a comedy special instead. Oh No, starring NYC-based comedian David Drake, streaming now on YouTube. Here's a clip. My wife is not here. Uh, She's out with this guy, Darren. I was like, hey, do you want to come to the album recording? She's like, no, 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 I got, I got plans with this guy, Darren. And I've never heard of Darren. She's never mentioned Darren. Uh, I was like, who is Darren? She's like, oh, no, 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 don't, don't worry about Dave, old, old friend. And I was like, oh, okay. And then this afternoon, uh, this guy showed up to my house on a motorcycle. <laughs> and then my wife got on the back of that motorcycle. <laughs> that is cheating, right? <laughs> That has to be cheating. She got on the back of the motorcycle. I was like, oh my God, she's cheating on me, right in front of the neighbors. It's at least a cheating loophole, right? Like if my wife had been like, hey Dave, I'm hanging out with Darren tonight. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, She's like, would it be cool if I kissed Darren while we're out? I'd be like, no, 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 that's that's a betrayal. That's cut dry cheating right there. Uh, You cannot be kissing Darren. Okay, what if I just wrap my arms around Darren and ride a giant vibrator up to the park? Joining me now, David Drake. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Um, I don't know how I first stumbled over you. I think the Instagram algorithm served you up to me. Not gonna lie, pressed you with my thumb because I thought you were hot, but I started watching. (laughs) Turned out you're hilarious. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, The two don't normally go together. I was going to say that rare thing, a combo and a straight guy, hot and funny. How did that happen to you? I mean, I was like a, like kind of a fat kid. And so uh, I, I wasn't hot all the way through. That happened later. So I developed. That'll do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, got a little something. When hot came for you, were you surprised? How did you acclimate to hot from being the fat kid in high school? I think I didn't acclimate well. I think I was, I was pretty cocky. Uh, when it first happened, because I heard some girl talking about it, just like I was suddenly ranked in she was ranking hot guys. And then she said uh, my name. And uh, it's funny because she later turned out to be gay. So she had no <laughs> horse in this race anyway. But uh, 
yeah, she she put me in there, and then that started to go to my head a little bit. And then, uh, but I switched schools in high school, so I went to a new school, and I was like a new kid, and so you get humbled again pretty quickly. So I didn't even get to enjoy being cocky hot. A lot of your stand-up, though, is about the way you look and the, <laughs> the, the assumptions people might make about you as like a hot, tall, straight, white guy I know. in comedy at this moment. What is it about being a hot, tall, straight, white guy that's mineable for comedic purposes? I used to have one thought that never really got turned into anything, but... Like I always thought of it as like being gifted a like a mansion and you're like every year that goes by, somebody takes away a room. So like and then you're 52 and you're left with this trailer and everyone's used to living in the trailer, but you remember the mansion. So that was like a bit I had where you just where it hurts more to be hot. But it's it's a lie. I mean, it's it's good. It's good to be hot. I had a friend (laughs) once, you know, probably 20, 30 years ago, who was just like the most insanely hot gay guy, like everything a gay guy was supposed to look like he looked like at that moment. And I asked him, what is that like? And he said, it's like having a fortune in a rapidly depreciating currency. Yeah. Same, same deal. You, you know what life could be and then you watch life take it away. So you had an interesting pandemic, a very eventful pandemic. What happened to you in New York City during the pandemic? (laughs) Well, I mean, it started off, it was kind of cool because me and my wife, we were living in Soho. And then uh, it was kind of empty and I'd never seen New York like that. And then things started to kind of open up in like a Mardi Gras-ish way where bars would open up and then they'd serve drinks from their windows and so, Into the street. yeah, so it felt kind of like anything goes chaos, kind of fun. But yeah, then we had my wife got pregnant. We had a kid and now we we had to ship out to Queens because they don't let you stay. You can't stay in Soho and have a kid. It's <laughs> no, not possible. Uh, now on Instagram at David Drake Comedy, you do a lot of prop comedy with your daughter. Does your wife? Yeah, know? the daughter's the prop. Yeah, yeah, yeah she <laughs> yeah, she knows. It's hard for her not to. Your wife didn't come to the taping of your comedy show. My husband doesn't listen to my podcast or read my column or my books or come to my shows. It's really freeing. I can say things about him like the only sensible bone in that man's body is mine. I can say that about him (laughs) on my podcast because I know he's not going to hear it. Your wife wasn't at the taping for your show. Uh, Does she ever come to your stuff? Is it freeing? Is it good for her not to be there? Does she follow you on Instagram? Does she know what you're saying about her? Yeah, I mean, she, when I first started comedy, you know, she, I mean, she saw me at the Laugh Factory and so it looked like I was famous. And so she would come to shows a lot. And then, um, the reality kind of sets in like, oh no, it's a, it's a, like a shell. It's a lie. It's a mask. You are a working comedian. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's working at a moving company. It's, it's like, it looks worse and worse the longer you're in it. So, uh, she kind of, yeah, she, she, she sees everybody's tricks because comedy is very much of like a magic show where like, if you don't see the punchline coming, it's funny. Now she's seen everyone's punchlines, so there's like nothing in it for for her. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, my birthday this year, she she surprised me. Um, since we had the baby, we haven't been out together, and so she surprised me and got a sitter. And then she she did five minutes of stand up, which is crazy at my show, which is like a packed like a packed show. And then she brought me up, 
And then uh, I looked at my notes and I was like, I can't do any of this. It's all <laughs> it's all about her. Yeah. And some of it's lies. My first like sentence was about how we were fighting. And that's clearly not the case when your loving wife brings you on stage. So it's like, <laughs> okay. Um, so I have a couple of questions I wanted to throw at you. Yeah. You know, I like to have people on to help me answer my sex questions because why the hell not? I shouldn't have to do it alone all the time. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to toss this first one your way. Hi, Dan. Long-term listener calling from London. I had something that I wanted to sense check with you. Basically, um, I'm in a new relationship. I've been with uh, my boyfriend about a month and a half. It's all very exciting and new and we're very compatible, like sexually, like passion-wise, um, hobbies-wise and just like general vibes. Both my uh, previous long-term significant relationships ended with my ex is both cheating on me and with your resources, I've, you know, kind of forgiven um, my exes for doing that. And I guess it was just a symptom of a larger problem. But the thing I wanted to sentence check you with is that my current boyfriend, um, his previous relationship of six years, which ended very recently. So about two, two months before we met, that also ended in infidelity, but he was the person who cheated. So he che we've had a lot of heart to hearts about this, and he he cheated about two years into the relationship, and also right at the end, obviously, so six years. And both times were um, it was with sex workers. Like he went to a masseuse and got a like happy ending um, uh, service, I guess. Um, given what he's told me about the relationship with his ex, that they were really bad communicators and very sexually incompatible as in they would have sex once a, once a year. It seems to me like he was, you know, just trying to do what he could to keep himself sane in those moments, which is what I know you say that a lot. And when, when I put my like Dan Savage logical hat on, that's how I feel. But I also wonder, am I being like too foolhardy, just sort of accepting it? I guess I'm I'm kind of scared that I feel so calm about it, you know, given w what happened to me. You'd think he would be the last person on earth that I would want to date, but I just feel like, I don't know, like our relationship is so different to what it sounds like his relationship was. Yeah, so I guess I, I wanted to sense check that and see what you thought. So as a straight guy, do you think a happy ending massage should count as cheating? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I've had this debate with my wife. Uh, <laughs> she thinks it's cheating. I, I don't know. Like if I was in the position and it just started to happen to me, I don't know what I would do or it's just like a weird situation. It's like uncomfortable. Um, I think if you go into it with the intention of getting jacked off in a parlor, <laughs> I think that's cheating. I mean, it's cheating for sure. <laughs> I don't know why I'm dancing around it. I know guys who went to get massages that began to turn into happy endings that they didn't ask for. Yeah. And they didn't know how to politely decline or, you know, extract their penises from the hands of the person who was already jacking them off. And so I could see stumbling into one happy ending massage, yeah. but stumbling into two. I can see myself getting jacked off to avoid an awkward whatever that is. So... Yeah, she's doing it. And I'm just like, I don't know the correct thing to say here. And maybe I'm having an off day. I think for the caller, the um, 
The question is whether she believes this guy. It's only been a month and a half. You barely know this guy. Do you believe him when he, you know, he did this thing. He sought out these happy ending massages. It was cheating in the, you know, with the agreement he had with his ex, apparently, that he barely ever had sex with. Do you believe him when he rationalizes the happy ending massages by pointing to his exes who you do not know and cannot question about, you know, they weren't good communicators, so it's her fault. We barely had sex, so it's her fault. Yeah. So as long, I'm not I mean, sure I buy that. If we only have his word to go for, like, I understand he has this biological issue. He has to get off and it's not happening at home. And this is his, like, roundabout logic way of dealing with it. Like, oh, I'm not cheating. I'm just going to this, you know, parlor. And it's a transactional thing in his brain. Uh, My brain's not like that. But I can see how the, like, the, the math, like, I can see how he got there where this would be an acceptable way about it. I, I can see it too. You know, sometimes the caller quotes me to me that sometimes people do what they got to do to stay married or, and stay sane or stay in a relationship yeah. and stay sane. And if there was no sex in the relationship, but he didn't want to exit it or, or end it or felt he couldn't like getting a need met in this way, that's pretty safe. Cause a happy ending massage person isn't going to fall in love with you or want to know you find you on instagram and (laughs) find you on instagram uh follow you home from a comedy club that's not going to (laughs) happen and it's just a hand job and a hand job isn't going to put his primary partner should they start having sex again at any risk of anything so as infidelities go i think it's perhaps the most forgivable kind yeah i also just think like when you know that something is wrong and and a relationship's about to end it's kind of like the like the apocalypse, you know, where you're like, I'm going to rob a target. I'm not going to normally do that when I value <laughs> my life. But like when you know it's all kind of crashing down around you, you do stuff that's maybe a little crazy. Yeah, sometimes there's that point that falls between when you've decided you're going to end a relationship and when you actually do end the relationship. And rumspringer, cumspringer, dumbspringer, people in that period of the end of the life of a relationship will allow themselves because they've already ended it in their heads. Yeah. Even if they have ended it technically. And, you know, if you're going to do things that wouldn't have been permissible before the official end of the relationship, I don't think you should confess those things, spare your partner that you robbed the target or got the hand job. They don't need to know (laughs) that. If you were like doing things on the way out, if you're sleeping around on your partner before the end of the relationship, don't also sleep with your partner, make excuses not to have sex. So you don't, you know, expose your partner to a sexually transmitted infection on the way out. But yeah, there is a lot of robbing of targets that goes on. Yeah. And like a of senior a slump, a lazy period where you're just kind of whatever. This is all kind of crashing down. But, I, I, yeah. I, I think though that for the caller, what I would advise, you know, you were in relationships, you got cheated on. Cheating is so common. And you have to decide whether it is a relationship extinction level event for you and make that clear to the guy you're dating now that, you know, and if the hand job from the happy ending massage parlor counts as cheating for you, then you need to make that clear. I mean, as a general rule, I, I have this really contradictory advice. I think you want to have a really broad definition of sex. So everything counts. So you have lots of sex. So it's not just PIV or PIA, but when it comes to cheating, I think it really behooves us to have narrow definitions of cheating because then you're less likely to be cheated on and less likely to have a relationship collapse because of cheating. 
And in my universe, a hand job, happy ending massage wouldn't count as cheating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. For her, I think everyone gets like a clean. Sl- I mean, I know most of most of my friends have done some form of cheating at some point. Most of the people I know, which is kind of that was kind of like a weird thing to learn because when I was a kid, I thought nobody did. Now I'm like, oh, wow, so many people do. So I think everyone gets a clean slate until they until they mess up. So this guy is being honest with you. Yeah, I wouldn't tell you about the sex workers. Like if I just started dating a new person like that, I would keep that to myself because it's like damning. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And it's going to make, you know, him telling the caller that it's going to make the caller worried perhaps whenever he's out of her sight. Yeah. So he's already being super honest about something that's pretty shameful, I think. That it might have been, but it's super honest about something that you think it might have been better for him to lie about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's already being pretty open about something like that. So I don't know. I think it's like maybe he's trying to just put it all out and start something new and good. It's only been 1.5 months, though. Maybe he brought it up to see how you felt about this kind of infidelity, not because he's never going to do it again, but because he would like to do it again. And he was just testing the waters. But it's only been <laughs> 1.5 months, caller. Who knows where this relationship's going to go? But, you know, if it lasts for 40 years and he only gets a couple of hand jobs from... Not bad. Masseuses that he was pretty good at being monogamous. <laughs> I just I push back against this idea that if somebody cheats on you once or twice over the decades, they were bad at being monogamous. I think they were pretty good at being monogamous if they only cheat a couple of times. I mean, for sure. I mean, some people it's different. Like Norm Macdonald had that bit about how Tiger Woods is the most loyal man there ever was. Because most men get ten shots at cheating and he had a hundreds of thousands and he only mm. did it 40 times or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you define in your special though, your wife getting on the back of the motorcycle as cheating. What's yeah. your definition of cheating? <laughs> Which is a bit like, I don't really think, you know, I just had like kind of a glint in my eye when she told me, like I was like, oh, okay, motorcycle. I'll, and then I wrote it down. But I, I don't really believe that that like it it didn't really bother me. I just like I smiled because I knew I had a new bit. You could get a joke out of it. Yeah. But I'm also pretty I don't really get jealous in that way. And I uh, I look down on jealousy. So I try to like avoid that. It's such a superpower to mm-hmm. to to not be the jealous type. I am not the jealous type and i think it's the reason why you know everybody i know who comes to me as a friend you know because i've been with my husband for so long how do you you know make it work and and they tell me about you know why their most recent relationship ended and i'm just like really that's why you're breaking up like if i broke up over trivial shit like that we would have broken up four (laughs) hundred thousand times in the last 25 years like there's no long-term relationship without betrayals and forgivenesses and betrayals and forgivenesses, hopefully leavened every once in a while by the occasional orgasm and oxytocin <laughs> rush to, to, to reconnect. Yeah. But, no, I, I mean, I've just seen, you know, some like she has friends that are guys and they'll hang out and I see the way some of their wives or girlfriends react and it will, you know, suddenly they can't hang out anymore because the wife is jealous or something like that. And it's just, 
it's just sad, you know, that that can't exist. So I've always, I don't know. Yeah, it's sad and it undermines and destroys relationships. We, yeah. we live in a, t- like people, this micro infidelity bullshit that came up a few years ago and just this propensity for people to define cheating is unforgivable and then define absolutely everything is cheating and then wonder why they can't make a relationship work long term. When particularly straight people, you have straight people defining having friends of the opposite sex as somehow infidelity adjacent, if not cheating. Yeah. And it's like uh, all you're creating is like resentment and also a reason to lie. Because if I don't think hanging out with this particular girl is bad and you do, I'm still going to do it. I'm just not going to tell you about it because it's what I want. I want to have my friend. You're engineering conflict that could easily be avoided. And what you're saying is, I don't trust you. Well, then why are you in the relationship if you don't yeah. trust someone out it's of weird. your sight? It is weird. Can, can we keep you on for one more question? Yeah, yeah, of course. Hey, Dan, I just want to run something by you. Um, my girlfriend and I have this kind of weird kink of calling people while we have intercourse. And... I guess this brings all sorts of like consent issues around. It's like they're kind of involved, but not. Is this okay or not? Just want to get your thoughts on that. Thanks. Bye. So, I mean, yeah, I have a lot to say about this. For one, his voice is just so like whispery that it makes me feel a little violated that you even. <laughs> <laughs> that your ear holes have been brutally violated here. Like it sounds like he's having sex during this voice memo. Uh, I think it's very clear that he's doing to me, you, and when we put this out on the podcast, all of my listeners, what he says he's done to people, generally other people calling them while he's having sex is if that's a consent violation, have I committed a consent violation by making you listen to this call and now making my People who listen to the Lovecast listen to this call. I mean, well. if he really is having sex and it just got sent to however many millions of people are going to hear that, it's kind of, he did it. <laughs> it's I mean, it's kind of like the highest level of it's what awesome. he's shooting for. Yeah. Maybe we've given him a reach around, a pretty significant reach around here and insist. <laughs> Is it a consent violation? I I remember when I was young, there was a couple of times when my boyfriend was on the phone with somebody and, you know, I went down on him while I was on the phone. I think I talk sometimes about this thing I called secret perving. And I think secret perving is fine so long as it's secret. And, you know, if you're wearing businessman wearing panties at a business meeting and part of the thrill for him is nobody else in the room knows he's doing this thing. You know, the the straight couple of the remote control vibrating butt plug in each other who have the dials at the restaurant and Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the this foot fun, harmless, giggly thing. Yeah. And so caller, I think so long as you're not being creepy, it's fine, but you're being kind of creepy. You sound yeah. like a creep. If your voice sounded a little better, like a like a David Attenborough or like <laughs> I mean, you've got a nice voice, Dan. You could probably pull this off, but I think is he I mean, is he talking like you would talk to a friend on the phone while this is going on? Like it's a little heavy breathing. I think caller, when you do this, you need to call 
earlier in the sex, perhaps on a <laughs> one of those orgasmic plateaus. What it sounds like is the caller is about to come. <laughs> and that's what makes this a consent violation. If you were, you know, a few minutes away from coming and you could sustain an even tone and you didn't sound breathless, then it would be secret perving. But it's not secret perving. And if it sounds like you're about to ejaculate. I just want to know, like, when he calls, does, is he asking them about their day? What it like? I want to know what he's saying. I, yeah, so hopefully he'll call back. Basically what you've done is you've encouraged him to call back while he's fucking his girlfriend and tell us what he talks with other people about when he calls those other people when he's fucking his this girlfriend. Is, yeah, this is the gift that keeps on giving for, um, for this caller. David Drake, where can people find you online? Uh, so Instagram is uh, David Drake Comedy. And then uh, my website is daviddrakecomedy.com. So pretty easy. You're hilarious. I really enjoyed your stuff. And everybody out there complaining about straight, not always white male comedians lately uh, finding their sets or their shows offensive. Look up David's show, Oh No, streaming now on YouTube. It is hilarious. And there's not a transphobic joke in your whole oeuvre that <laughs> I was able believe to find. It? And I checked. I checked. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> People are getting so much trouble right now for transphobic jokes. I'm going to watch and listen to everything of David Drake's I can find before I have him on my show <laughs> so I don't get in trouble yeah, this with comes my back fellow and queers. Bites you. Yeah. Yeah. I really so, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, good for you. Good for you for having an entire comedy career with no transphobic jokes just to show <laughs> that it is possible to do that. It's not much of a career. And you have a regular show in New York. Yeah, I run a comedy show every Wednesday and Saturday uh, called Communities You Should Know. It's at the Gutter in Greenpoint. And... Uh, We've been running that since 2016. It's always awesome. And uh, yeah, check it out. I will next time I'm in New York. Thank you so much for coming on my dumb show, David. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, this is a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, Dan. Cisgender woman here in her 40s, bisexual, in a monogamous relationship currently with a lovely man. And I've got a question about non-monogamous relationship models, specifically polyamory, but also a bit of openness. I'm hearing examples on your show, but also elsewhere of people kind of throwing these ideas around, which sometimes sounds suspiciously like justifying the ability to cheat or, you know, justifying a sort of normal desire to want to have sex with another partner. And recently, a woman in my life who's important, a, a younger woman who's 22, um, who's been living with her boyfriend for a couple of years her boyfriend came to her and said, you know, I think I'm polyamorous. And, and really what transpired was he had been cheating uh, with a girl at work. And as far as I can tell, that's kind of all that it is. I mean, there's the example of the guy, also a straight guy again, whose wife popped out the baby and then he wanted to, you know, sleep with other people and asked about if he could you know, ask her about an open relationship. And and there's just been many examples like this of what feels like mostly straight men, although I don't want to just throw them under the bus, who are using this idea of, you know, alternative relationship models as a way of justifying bad behavior. And I'm just wondering if you could help shed some light on this. Like, how do we know, or how does one know if they're really genuinely interested in polyamory or openness, or if they're just kind of wanting to cheat. And 
I think it's just really slippery and I want to be open to people, but I, I find myself being inherently suspect when somebody tells me they're polyamorous. Of course, there are examples of, you know, real relationships that are working, but I talk about this with my boyfriend. We're both open. We've, we've slept with other people together, but we just can't quite wrap our heads around what the difference is. And we feel like you could help. If you made a monogamous commitment and you cheated on someone, they're allowed to be mad at you. You don't get to just waltz in and say, I'm Polly, therefore you can't be mad at me. This isn't something I did that you're allowed to be mad at me about. This is who I am. That's the weird-ass trump card some people play. When they cheat and get caught or cheat and disclose, they think that if they identify themselves now as Polly, that... They didn't do anything wrong or that they themselves were the wronged party because, oh, they were poly and they were forced to make a monogamous commitment against their will. And you know what? There's a grain of truth to that. There are a lot of people out there who make monogamous commitments that they aren't capable of honoring over the long haul because they think that's what they're supposed to do. They think that's what a good person does. And so we get hustled along, particularly when we're young into making commitments that only time and experience with having made that commitment we shouldn't have made proves to us that we shouldn't have made that commitment. So I don't want to say that everybody who cheats is just lying about being poly or realizing they're poly after they've cheated. Some people have made monogamous commitments. They should honor those monogamous commitments if they're an ethical person and they want out of that monogamous commitment, ideally they go to their partner with whom they made that monogamous commitment and renegotiate the terms of that relationship before they start having sex with other people. Unfortunately, that's not how it works in all respects. Some people who are in monogamous relationships cheat because they like having a secret, they like being naughty, they like getting it over on somebody, and the deceit is part of the thrill for them. Some people cheat because they think they just need to get this out of their systems, have this one-off with someone, and then they'll be monogamous again, be happy again in a monogamous relationship. And some people cheat and have a kind of epiphany that they shouldn't have made a monogamous commitment and that they're indeed, well, not necessarily poly. There's a difference between open and poly. But maybe some people have that affair and then realize, you know what, this is what I want, concurrent, committed, romantic relationships, and I want them to be above board. And so they go to the person that they made a monogamous commitment to that they've been cheating on, and they, I guess, come out to them not as a cheating piece of shit, but as a poly in that moment, poly piece of shit. I'm sorry. If you cheated on somebody, that's a piece of shit move. There are lots of different ways to rationalize an affair. There are some affairs that I will give permission slips to. Some people come to me because they know I might sign off on an infidelity in certain cases. But yeah, sorry. A, a lot of what you're bumping up against, what annoys you caller, are people thinking that no one's allowed to be mad at them if they cheated because they're going to play the poly card. And oh, this is my identity. Oh, you can't be mad at me because this is who I am, not what I did. That would be like me having a girlfriend or a wife and sleeping with men and then her finding out about it or me telling her about it and saying to her, but you're not allowed to be mad at me because I'm, I realized I'm gay. Well, she's still allowed to be mad at me, to be hurt, to feel betrayed. 
Then you can have a conversation about whether you're going to make that work as a companionate relationship, if it's a gay straight thing, or, you know, if somebody's come out as poly to the person they cheated on, a person they made a monogamous commitment to before they realized that they shouldn't be making monogamous commitments because monogamy isn't for them. It's not who they are. Okay. Then you can have a conversation about renegotiating the terms of that relationship and whether it's going to survive. But the person who was cheated on gets to be mad. You don't just get to swish your skirts and say, but I'm poly to justify, as you say, call her, to justify cheating. It doesn't justify cheating. But I have to say that in reality, in everyone's lived messy experience, not everyone's, but a lot of people's lived messy experience, it is the cheating that they wind up doing that makes them realize that they shouldn't have made that monogamous commitment in the first place because they're incapable of keeping it over the long term because monogamy isn't for them. All right, before we get to this week's listener feedback call-a-thon, let's read some tweets. Stephen Weil, a tweet just listening to Dan Savage talk about people who met Sleazy and how we ought to be more open about that. So we offer up our meet Sleazy tale that's really turned out quite well in the end. Thank you so much for sharing your meat sleazy story, Stephen and Wyla. I listened and enjoyed it. If anyone out there listening to me right now wants to listen and enjoy Stephen Wyla's meat sleazy story, go to stevexwyla.substack.com. That's Steve with a V. And that's Wyla spelled Y-H-Y-L-A, stevexwyla.substack.com. Speaking of Stevens, Stephen M. Forrest tweets, good show at Fake Dan Savage. The Q&A wasn't the same old, same old. Your advice could be applied to different situations. And I enjoyed Dr. Joe Court. Side is a bit like being a renegade in a good way because it does no harm, which is how I see myself, a no harm renegade. Thank you, Mr. Forrest, for the constructive criticism. I will try to lean into advice that applies to different situations in future shows. And everybody else, go follow Stephen M. Forrest on Twitter. He's really funny in a low-key, offbeat way. And what's great is that I can't tell if it's intentional or not, or even if Stephen M. Forrest exists or not. But if Stephen is a bot or a character, he's the most charming bot slash character on Twitter right now. And he deserves to have more than 67 followers. Go follow him right now at Stephen with a PH, Stephen M. Forrest. And finally, Denise McIntyre tweets, I've been listening to the Savage Lovecast since 2009. And yesterday, I finally became a Magnum subscriber. Thanks for the discount at Fake Dan Savage. Well, thanks goes to Nancy. It was her idea, but you're welcome, Denise. Thank you for becoming a Magnum sub. Our June sale, half-off Magnum podcast subscriptions, ends this Thursday, June 30th for new subscribers. If you want twice as much Lovecast, more Qs, more As, more guests, no ads for as little as 10 bucks along with bonus perks like access to my new sex and politics bonus podcast, head over to savage.love slash lovecast and become a Magnum sub today. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast and a thank you, a big thank you to everyone, Magnum sub or regular listener who posted about the show to your social media over the last week. That is the best way to spread the word about the Lovecast. All right, let's get to those listener feedback calls. To the woman with the dad that has the dramatic relationships, it's worth looking into something called the Karpman drama triangle. Um, it sounds like your dad is trying to draw you into his drama. 
the drama triangle is a really interesting concept, which talks about three roles. So that's why there's a triangle. There's the victim role, the rescuer role, and the persecutor role. And it sounds very much like your dad is casting himself as the victim and his partners as the persecutors, and he's bringing you into his triangle as the rescuer. And what the Cartman Triangle teaches you is that you don't have to play the role if you don't want to. You can step outside of the triangle. Um, and in doing so, you can help your dad to do so too. It's really been very helpful and worth a read. Hey, Dan, this is in response to the woman on episode 817 who said she doesn't like kissing. I, my entire life, have never liked kissing. I don't remember a time when I thought it was great. I find it very unnatural. I find it very, like, contrived and almost rehearsed because most of the time I feel like people that are kissing me are kissing me the way they kissed the last person they were regularly kissing, and I've just never liked it. However, I've never had a problem. I've never had a problem with partners when I tell them this. And when I say, hey, listen, I don't like kissing. It feels really unnatural to me. But what I have found is I need to tell them what I do like. I like biting very lightly instead. I do not mind like small pecks occasionally. I do not want open mouth kissing. I think that's gross. People don't have a problem with that. I just make sure that we are having fun and fulfilling uh, experiences and sexual experiences in other ways. And nobody's ever complained to me that I'm not doing any deep throat open mouth kissing or whatever it is that everybody else does. I'm um, close to 50 years old and I've never had a problem. I remember having this issue ever since I was like 15. Hey, Dan, thanks for your conversation with Dr. Joe Court on episode 817. As a bi man who doesn't like anal sex, I worry that other men will think I'm not really bi, even though I don't like anal with women either. But after listening to your interview, now I know I'm just a side. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the voicemail app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Reminder, our Magnum sale ends this Thursday, June 30th. All new 6 to 12 month subscriptions half off right now. Get half off the Magnum Lovecast for as little as 10 bucks, along with Magnum sub perks like access to my new sex and politics bonus podcast and invites to Sack Lunch, our monthly Zoom hangouts exclusively for Magnum subscribers. Our next Sack Lunch is Thursday, July 7th. I'll be answering questions live. To become a Magnum sub and get an invite to that Sack Lunch and so much more, head to slash lovecast by this Thursday and use the code SAVAGEPRIDE2022, capital S, capital P, 2022, no spaces, get out. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow David Drake on Twitter at TheDavidDrake. Follow Jamie Barton on Twitter at JBartonMezza. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.